Um, my name's Nathan, and I'm the campus pastor here. It's great to have you here with us. Uh, speaking of being the campus pastor, November 3rd, next Sunday, we are doing a Meet the Pastor, okay? So if you're newer to White Oak um, and, and you would love just to kind of hear a little bit about me, I'd get to know me, I'd love to get to know you. You can bring any questions you have or just kind of sit back, relax. It's very informal. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about White Oak, but also just give you a chance to get to know a little bit about me. So, um, and I would love the opportunity to get to know a little bit about you. You can mark your connection card. You can si- sign up online for Meet the Pastor. That's during this hour next Sunday, and um, I'll be leading through that, obviously. <laughs> we are in the middle of a series that we started, which seems like ages ago, um, through the New Testament book of Romans. And Romans was a letter written by Paul, and Paul was the first century's greatest, or arguably the greatest theologian in the first century. When he met the resurrected Jesus, clearly it changed his life. And he began to plant churches all along the Mediterranean world, all right, the Mediterranean rim, and really began to change an empire, okay? That was, that was Paul's goal. And so the book of Romans, it's a letter, really, was written to the churches that are scattered throughout the city of Rome. They're meeting in homes, they're house churches scattered throughout that city. And, and there's three questions that Paul is trying to answer in the book of Romans, all right? Three questions. One of them is, what makes us right with God? Ultimately, what makes us and God good, all right? That, that we're on the same page, that I know him and, and I'm known by him and, and I'm good with him, all right? Now, the Jews believed, the Jewish Christians believed it was their religious works that did that, okay? Now, Paul's going to dismantle this, this, but this is the big, one of the big things. The Jewish Christians believed that it was their religious law that made them right with God. If they could be good enough doing that, then they and God were good, all right? The second question that Paul is going to tackle throughout the book is, what's Jesus's role, all right? Who is Jesus in the midst of this thing, if the Christians in Rome were saying, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, we believe he died and he resurrected, people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection were still very much alive at this time. So, so they knew that, all right? But so what's Jesus' role really? And Paul's going to answer this question throughout the book, is, is that Jesus makes us right with God. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that makes us right, forgiven and set free with God. All right? So the third question Paul is going to address then in, in throughout the book is, what makes us right with God, really? All right? It's the same as the first question, because it's really hard for us to grasp this. And so Paul is going to keep going back and say, well, actually, it's something that the non-Jewish Christians, they're known as Gentiles, they're just non-Jewish Christians, that it's something that they got right. What makes us right with God, really, is faith. Faith, believing in Jesus. Now, that's the greater context of Romans. So what about Romans chapter 10? That's where we land today is Romans chapter 10. And the reason that 10 is so critical to the greater story of Romans, and really why Romans chapter 10 is is critical to the greater story of my life and yours, because no matter what you believe about God or Jesus this morning, we are all on some sort of spiritual journey. And no matter where you are on that, where, what, what your story, where, where in your story you are, Romans 10 is critical for your walk too, because it's going to address three things. Romans chapter 10, all right? Paul's going to say, 
he's going to make the argument that we can desire the right things in our faith. We can desire all the right things. Ultimately, we want to know that we're good with God. We want God's peace. We want any good thing that God has to give us. We want it. Right? And we want to know that we have this relationship with God. Whatever that means, all right? And, and, and there's a lot. But, but ultimately, that's what we want. Right? We want to know that we're good with God. And Paul's going to make the argument, we can desire the right thing, but go about it with the wrong approach. And if we go about it with the wrong approach, we're going to end up somewhere far from where we wanted to be. We're going to end up, if we take the wrong approach, we're going to end up far from our Heavenly Father and far from the full and abundant life that He promises us. That's why Romans 10 is critical to our story. So on the front of your program today, um, our big idea is I, I am not disgraced. I am not disgraced. And you see that. In other words, I am not put to shame. All right? Maybe you want to write the word shame kind of maybe in parentheses there. Uh, I think that would kind of help the conversation today. That I am not disgraced. Romans chapter 10, verse 11. All right? This is what Paul says here. He says, anyone who trusts in him, being Jesus, will never be disgraced. Never. Trust is what gets you to a place where you, ha- you, you, you do not have shame. You are not disgraced before your Heavenly Father. Simple trust is what does it. Now, we're going to work backwards from there a little bit. That was verse 11. What does Paul say beforehand? What's the context? All right, so we're going to um, learn something about ourselves, I think, and then we're going to come to the middle of Romans 10, and we're going to unlearn it, all right, so that we can move forward in confidence that simple trust is what makes you and me right with God, all right? So um, go to chapter 10. If you have a Bible app, pull that up. If you don't know a good one, stop by the hub on your way out, and we'll show you a, a one that, that many of us use and love. We also have paper Bibles. They are still making those today. Uh, so, and you can take one, and they're free. So take it, and it, the app is free as well. All right, Romans 10, verse 1. This is, what Paul, this is how he starts. Dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. All right, so context is important. So the Jewish people had a real zeal for God. They had this real passion for God, for his laws, for their obedience to the laws. Now that's a good thing, right? Now you would think that's a good thing. If somebody were to tell you, man, you've got like a lot of passion in this thing, or she's really passionate about this, you'd say, yeah, you know, I am. That's a good thing. You would think that's a good thing. For centuries, the Jewish people had this desire to follow God through their tradition and their rules and their ceremony. And that is how they knew that they were in good standing with their heavenly father, all right? They had such a a drive to pursue rightness with God. I mean, that was their pursuit, which again, you're like, that's pretty noble. All right, it's pretty good. But Paul says there's a problem. Their very desire to make sure that they're right with God is the stumbling block in their way to actually being right with God. And that's weird to hear. Paul calls their issue misdirected zeal. Misdirected zeal. So here's how we define that. That's passion 
man, I don't know what you're passionate about, what drives you. That's conviction about something. And so it's zeal, it's passion, it's drive and conviction aimed in the wrong direction. Misdirected zeal. Now, maybe you've heard of Jeff Lanham. That name probably doesn't mean anything to you, but you've possibly you've picked up on this story recently. He's a Bengals fan who has vowed to camp out on the roof of his restaurant. This is the Hog Rock Cafe in Milan, Indiana. He's vowed to camp out on the roof of his restaurant until the Bengals win a game. All right? I don't know if you've seen this. The poor guy, okay? Um, he's, he's camped out there. He says he's going to stay there. He's going to live in a tent. Okay, so he's living in a tent, all right? He's got a TV up there. He's got a charger. He's got an air mattress, a charger for his phone, I should say. This is what the article said. He has a phone charger. Um, he's got a heater because he knows he's probably going to be there, you know, long term, like January. Um, so, so he knows he's going to be there a while. So he's got all these things. He says, I'm not coming down. And to the Bengals win. Now, what I wish for Jeff, I don't know Jeff, but what I wished for Jeff is that somebody in his life cared about him enough to say, Jeff, buddy, your zeal is inspiring. I mean, really. But your drive is aimed in the wrong direction. All right? You are putting your energy and your zeal towards something. I guess what? Nothing's going to come from it. Right? And I wish somebody loved Jeff enough, but apparently they don't. Now, in Romans chapter 10, this is what Paul's going to say. Now listen to this, all right? Jeff's, Jeff, as we speak, what, what time is it in London? It doesn't matter. As we speak, Jeff's in his tent. I kid you not, this is real life. Listen to what Paul says in verse 3. For they don't understand God's way, he's talking about the Jewish Christians, of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. Now, which, which, which is fascinating is the Jewish people desired to know God and be connected to him so desperately that they said, we got this, okay? They would rather work out their own relationship with God through their own version of religion, That's what they trusted most was the things that they did and the understanding that they had, all right? They could check the religious boxes, and we we do this. I mean, you and I, we do this. They could check the religious boxes. They can feel like that their faith is affiliated with the right things, the right beliefs, the right church, all right? And, And all the while, they're trying to be very, very religious, okay, they're actually missing out on what makes them right with God, which is God's grace and your and my faith in Jesus. Now, it's an odd thing. We say, how could, how could we get caught in a position where we actually desire to be close to God and in our pursuit of that, we find that that's the very thing That makes us far from him. That's nonsensical, isn't it? I mean, we feel like as long as I've got a desire for God somewhere in my life, I feel like that's a good thing. That's a good drive. And Paul says, and that's the very thing, if you're not careful, 
that will trip you up and then you'll miss it. And I don't want to miss it. And he does not want you to miss it either. So how, what does that look like? How does it look like to have this strong drive for God, but then to miss it and not be the very thing that causes us to miss it? And here's one way that happens is we desire for God to tell us who we are. Now, ultimately, that's a good thing. And he's the only one. Every person in this room, you are a son and, or a daughter of our God in heaven. He is the only one who gives you our, your identity, your real true identity. You are a deeply loved, created daughter and son of our heavenly father. He's the only one that can give you our identity. But many times we look for God to affirm who we are. And what we mean by that is, I just want God to give me permission to be who I want to be. And that's very different. And so we say, well, yeah, I have this desire for God to just, to just, just, give me permission to kind of just affirm the things that I want to be. Now, now you see this sometimes when like a celebrity or, or an athlete, um, you know, whether it's an awards, you know, you know, thing on TV, or maybe there's a, just scored a touchdown and, and, you know, we point, we point to God, you know, um, or, or even the celebrity will give a shout out to God and the audience just erupts with applause. In those moments, everyone's a big fan of God. Everybody loves God because ultimately sometimes what you and I want, the, the desire we have to be right with God is to say, God, here I am. Accept me. Accept the choices that I've made for my life. Accept me based on the accomplishments that I've made. That's the kind of God, that's kind of the acceptance that we want. So sometimes you and my desire to be connected with our Heavenly Father really comes, we get to set the rules. We say, God, here I am. Here's the choices I've made, the life that I've decided to live. Accept me. And we think that it's a really beautiful thing. How could that be wrong? Another way that we desire to be connected with God and, is that we desire to receive things from God. And if we say, well, gee, a life lived that says, God, I want these good things from you. How can that be bad? How can that be a stumbling block? Because what we mean by that too many times is, God, I want the things that I deserve from you. And we'll credit God. And sometimes we should for the money that we want to make and that we have, for the nice things that we own, for the relationships that we think we deserve the kind of girlfriend we should have, the kind of marriage we believe we should have, the kind of kids that we believe we should have, the job that we believe we were like, created for. And we say, God, I, I put on you the responsibility to give me all of these things because that's what success in a life satisfied should look like. I want to connect with God, don't you? And I want him to pour out all of those things on me. Right? How could desiring a closeness with God be a stumbling block? Well, that could be one. Finally, one of the ways that, we, we, that our desire for God is actually a stumbling block to actually getting to know him is we want him to confirm with us where we're going. And I mean that in, in very literally. We want to know that we're going to heaven. Uh, and the movies and on TV shows, everybody who dies goes to heaven. And, and I wish that were true, all right? I wish that were true. It's possible through Jesus, 
right? But we just want God to confirm where it is that we go. And so all of us will kind of really try to play that game. Well, what does it take to go to heaven? To be a good person? Well, okay, but there's 200 people in this room, and that could be 200 different things, and that's all right. Because as long as you want to go to heaven, you, just, you trust God to make that happen, then you're good. And some of us will, will, will make sure that we're doing just enough to be good, to be good enough. Some of us will turn to religion to do that. Not all, not everybody. Some of us will turn to religion. We'll say, well, I've given a little bit. I've attended a little bit. I read a little bit. I pray a little bit. I believe a little bit. And even some of us have strong religious convictions towards a certain direction. But ultimately, Paul's point, and it's a humbling one, actually kind of a scary one, is that you can desire the right thing, go about it the wrong way, and you're going to end up far from where you wanted to be. So where does that leave us? Israel's zeal was aimed, Paul said, in the wrong direction. Though rightness was God, with God, rightness with God was something that they wanted, they ended up in a tent on the roof. A lot of conviction, a lot of passion, aimed in the wrong direction. So their lives were not aimed in the direction to receive the relationship with God that they ultimately wanted. Do you see why the message of Romans chapter 10 is so important? So before we land on the point that we are not disgraced, that as long as you have your faith in Jesus, you're not disgraced, we have to then define what does disgrace mean? And I think this is how Paul clearly defines it in Romans chapter 10. Disgrace is zeal aimed in the wrong direction. If your conviction and your passion, even if it's rooted in wanting to please God or be close to God, if it's aimed at the wrong thing, disgrace and shame. I wonder how many of us have been in that boat. I wonder how many of us, maybe you've been in seasons of your life, or maybe you're in it now, I don't know where you're starting to even recognize, even through Paul's words, that you've had a lot of conviction, but it's been aimed at the wrong thing. I don't know. So the unasked question that Paul then starts to answer is, so how do I get off the roof? Right? If the Jewish Christians are like, we've, what, are you mean to say that for centuries and our ancestors have been living this tent faith? This zeal and this conviction, this fanaticism that's been aimed in a wrong direction, that's actually moving our hearts away from the Father? Paul says yes. So the question that they didn't ask, that they do ask, that Paul will ultimately answer is, so how do I get off the roof? How do we aim our lives in the right direction? Jesus, and you'll see here in a minute, it's one name, it's one person, and one person only. How do I aim my life in the right direction? that I can enjoy this right relationship with God that I really want and this full life of receiving these very good things from my heavenly dad. How do I, 
How do I get that? And the first thing is that we have to admit our shame. We have to admit we have shame. We actually start in a place of disgrace. Now, some of us don't have a problem doing that. There's people in this room, you actually live in a world of shame. You can call it shame or you can call it guilt, actually. Guilt and shame. And you, and you live in that place. You look at your past and you look at your present and it actually just eats you up. Now, that can be guilt that you've offended a holy God or it could just be guilt that you just did something against someone else. But it's still shame. Now, the problem is many of us don't really feel that shame. In fact, I think as our culture, as the pendulum still continues to swing away from from a culture in a Western America that is grounded in biblical faith, that the people who will walk through the door of a church feeling ashamed or unworthy, or I, I think we'll actually begin to see that dissipate. Because the truth is, many of us live a life of ambivalence towards shame. We're, we're actually so far connected from our Heavenly Father that we don't look at our lives through a lens of shame or guilt that we've offended a holy God. And we have this indifference or this apathy towards it. And now, you know, we'll all say, well, you know, no one's perfect. I'm not perfect. But really, we don't mean that to admit shame. We just mean that to give ourselves permission to do whatever we want anyway. And I wonder if we can recall, if you can recall the last time, some of you can, a lot of us can't, if you could recall the last time that, that your just shame, your guilt, your sin of offending a holy and awesome God, where you just grieved that. Were you grieved in your spirit? The shame that has offended a holy God. Kind of losing that, aren't we? Do you feel that a little bit? That we're losing that sense? And this is where Paul acknowledges something that's really, really awkward in these house churches when this letter is being read. There's the Jewish Christians here and there's the the Gentile Christians scattered over here and they're all together in this house. And Paul is saying, listen, Jewish Christians, this is something that the Gentiles have actually gotten right. They know they're disgraced. They admit it. They know that they've got nothing to bring to the table when it comes to being right with God. They're, they're, They're lost. They have no, their ego has been, been destroyed. Like their religious practices have added up to nothing. And they know it. This is something they've gotten right. They simply have put their faith in Jesus. And that's where he goes into Romans uh, 10, verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, listen, all of you. This is what he says. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord 
who gives generously to all who call on him. So you have to learn your position of disgrace before you quickly, we have to unlearn that then. Because what we have in Jesus is a position of forgiveness and salvation. We are no longer disgraced. It is as simple as this. Paul couldn't be any more clear, and I want to make it clear too, because it's, we complicate it so much. If you put your trust in Jesus, you are saved. If you believe and you call on the name of Jesus, you are right with God. Don't overcomplicate it. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you can enter into a relationship with God where you are right, you are good, and your heavenly Father wants to give you all of the good things that you need. He can't wait to do that simply because you believe. How do I get out of this tent faith the strong convictions you and I might have, but it's aimed at the wrong person and the wrong things. Paul says you have to admit your shame and then realize that in Christ you are a new creation and openly declare your faith. Now twice he talks about this faith declare, this openly declare. Now sometimes and traditionally we have thought that just means publicly to declare, to just say it out loud. That's not untrue. But it's so much deeper than that, all right? To openly, de- to, to live a faith that is declared, that means I've surrendered myself to somebody that's more powerful. But many of us will choose to hold on to religion. Even after hearing this, you will choose to hold on to religion because following rules is easier than actually surrendering and declaring your faith having a dependence on your past, having a dependence on, I think I'm good enough, you'll prefer that because that's easier than declaring your faith surrendered to a heavenly father. And we'll still do it. But a faith declared is driven by a new zeal. It's a new conviction, a new power, not an intent um, you, you know, living on a roof with a lot of conviction that is aimed in a completely useless direction. But declared faith says that I've come under the control of a new power. There's something new that drives me. And here's what I love. I read this this summer and it still kind of blows my mind. A faith that is declared, openly declared, allows a reordering of your love's Let me say that again. A faith that is openly declared begins to reorder the loves in your life and mine. One that is open and surrendered. We say, God, here's all of the things that are important to me. Here's all the things that drive my heart, that get me out of bed in the morning. Here's the things that 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 drive me and I'm going to let you reorder them. 
faith openly declared. Tent faith, tent faith does not admit shame. It says, no one's perfect, but I got this. That's what tent faith says. Tent faith keeps, it does not openly declare faith. Tent faith can claim faith, but it keeps control. I'm the one in control. I call the shots. I'll measure how I'm doing. That's what tent faith does. But Paul says, admit your shame. Declare your faith and allow God to reorder your loves. Thirdly, then he throws this in the mix. He says, faith that gets you off the roof is a faith that it is, has feet that move. All right? Feet that move. Listen to this. Paul's actually talking to the Jewish Christians now. Have you ever had somebody talk about you when you're right there in the room? It's kind of awkward, but that's what he does. He's going to talk to the Jewish Christians about the Gentile Christians and those in the Roman Empire who have not yet heard of Jesus. Look what he says in 14, verse 14. So how can they call on him, Jesus, to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Like Paul just begins, he just, up, he just turns this thing over on its head. He says, listen, church, church, listen. You are made right with God, not based on, on your rules or your ego or your, your being good enough or your religious checklists. Like, that leads nowhere. It's admirable, but in the end, you're going to fail. It's misdirected. But once you surrender your life to Jesus and you call on that name, you openly declare it and allow God to begin to reorder the loves in your life directed by and toward Jesus. Paul says, when you do that church, we are going to take this empire. I mean, we're going to take this empire. All of these people who have been living in a tent all of their lives, they're going to know the name of Jesus. In the first century, the Christians called themselves the way. I mean, did you know this? It's in, it's in Acts. You see it in the book of Acts about a half a dozen times. Capital T, capital W, the way. They called themselves that. They were known as the way. Listen, listen. First century followers of Jesus saw themselves as the path, as the street, as the road map for all of humankind to be reconnected with their heavenly father. The way. That's what first, first century Christians called themselves, the way. And what Paul says is, his, this is his strongest urge towards the mission of the church. When you let Jesus reorder your loves, your heart will be drawn to the mission of the church. That is to get your feet moving. And you cannot move if you're stuck 
on the roof. You get me? You got to be careful here. You know, uh, several months ago, I was in, in a position where, where, where I was being taught something similar to this, this idea of just God's love for me, just, just his love for me, not tied to what I do for a living or what, have I, what I've, I've accomplished or how big the church is and all these things that pastors kind of get measured by, only just learning about how much God loved me and valued me as a son. And it's still turning my life upside down and, and messing with my mind and heart. And one of the things that I came to realize, and these guys were helping point it out to me, they're like, man, you know, you're a pastor. Yeah, there were a couple of us in the room at the time. And they're like, so why can't you just kind of let this message of God's love for you sink into your heart for you? Not for your church, not for White Oak, not for anybody you know. And, and I came to realize that my struggle had been, I, I had kind of been measuring my success just based on how White Oak does naturally, that my connection with God was how many people were coming to know Jesus. And as long as my, my heart was drawn to this mission, beautiful feet, let's get moving, let's, let's grow, let's teach people about Jesus, let's, let's, let's take our city, that's a good thing. It's a great thing. That's the mission of the church. But what my eyes were open to is that like my heart was so drawn to this mission of the church that I was missing this intimate connection I just have with my Father in heaven. That I relate to God, not based on how we perform as a church, but because I'm a son of a really good dad in heaven who loves me. That's the name I call on. That's the name that I openly declare. And I don't want you to miss it either. So we're going to go to a time of reflection, and, and here's what I just want to challenge you. Here's the thing. You can stay on the tent. You can stay in the tent. You can stay in the tent and on the roof, and you can have strong convictions about a great many things. In fact, there'll be people in your life who will congratulate you. They'll call you a fan. They'll recognize this, this, this drive that you have, but ultimately, it will be aimed in the wrong direction. Please hear my heart. You'll be wasting your time with a whole lot of passion, aimed at the wrong thing. There's only one name, one person, Jesus, who will answer the questions that your heart desires. How do I connect with God and know that I'm good? It's the name of Jesus. What is Jesus' role? He saved me, and he makes me right with God. How do I get right with God, really? It's the name of Jesus. Period. So here's the question that I want you to think on. I challenge you to think on this morning. What does it mean to love him, Jesus, most? I want you to think about it. Take, take a minute here quietly. What does it mean to love God most? Not more. I throw out the question, what does it take to love God more? And you know what you and I will do immediately. We'll just start writing a list of the things that will show, should anybody ask. Well, here's how you know I love God more. It's more effort. It's more this. No. It's a different question. What does it look like for you to love him most? 
What does your heart need to know? What does our Father need to affirm in your heart? That you love him most. What does it look like to love him most? Pray with me. Father, I thank you for giving us a dynamic acting faith and for giving us one name towards directing our passion and our zeal and our conviction. One name that gives us everything our heart desires. I thank you for Jesus, for his life, for the identity I have in him, for your forgiveness, for your grace. Aim our lives towards you, Father. Aim our lives towards you. We love you. Amen.